0: The title of our message is truth, love, and the church specifically. So now not just the truth, what is truth and not just love, but also how does that relate to the church and how should the church react to those who differ in areas of truth? What is our responsibility towards one another when there's disagreement on what truth is, when people are are teaching false doctrine. What's our responsibility to one another in the truth? How do we love one another and what's the church's role? If we were to be honest, if we were to go back through church history, the church hasn't always gotten this right. There have been times that the church and the state and the two authorities or spheres, whereas God designed the church with one set of authority in one sphere, and the state or the government with a different authority in a different sphere, And the church has the counsel, the authority, excuse me, the authority, the responsibility to counsel, to warn, to instruct, to teach. The church doesn't bear the sword like the state does. And yet there's been times where the church tried, the two got mixed and confused. And if you disagreed and were counted as a heretic, uh, there's been a lot of bloodshed in the name of truth. So we're not going to go there but what does it mean to love one another even in the face of disagreement how so does that mean should we go to the other extreme and just say there's no room for disagreement in fact doctrine is kinda of one of those things that creates lots of division and love is what unifies us and brings us together and you will see churches that with that mantra that's what they say they will say love is their abiding theme and whatever the social or political topic of the day they attribute love to it and say this is what we're going to be as about as a church because we don't want to divide and get into all that truth tricky doctrine disunity stuff. We're just going to be about love. Is that what the church is supposed to do with love? Well, how ought we think about this? And how does John handle it? We've been through 1 John and over and over you'll see that he instruction, warns, and counsels that truth really does matter and in fact, you're not a Christian if you don't believe the right things about Jesus. We saw that in 1 John and yet he equally held on to this truth that we need to love one another, that we need especially within the church to, to stick together in unity and, and to, as Jesus commanded us, that we, as he loved us, so we ought also to love one another. So how do truth and love fit together? And how would John handle truth and love in the church? How did John react to heretics, those who got the gospel wrong, those who proclaimed a false gospel, those who denied the truth of who Jesus Christ was. Well, there's a story that's told and whether or not it's true we'll just have to trust one historian's word but there was a heretic in around the same time of John whose name was Cerinthus. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right but Cerinthus was a heretic. He denied the virgin birth. He denied the fact that uh, Jesus was born in the flesh fully divine. So he would say that Jesus came to earth, was born of Mary and Joseph had human parents and was just a man and at his baptism divinity descended upon Jesus but then before the crucifixion divinity left. So this was the heresy that Cerinthus taught around this same time, end of the first century. In fact, there's some who think that 1st, that 2nd, and 3rd John were written to oppose this teaching of Serinthus and whether or not that's true we can't nail down precisely. But Serinthus is someone who many historians tell us John and Cerinthus were violently opposed to one another. Not violently in the sense of bloodshed but in the sense that they didn't mince words of the fact they didn't like each other. So Irenaeus was an early church father around the second century, and Irenaeus uh, was discipled by Polycarp, one of the first church fathers, and Polycarp was discipled by John. So you get the, pro- the flow of progression. There, John discipled, John discipled Polycarp, Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, and in one of Irenaeus' books, he tells a story that he would have got from the Gospel of John through that flow chain of friends there, of discipled one another. That one day John is there, and he's in the public bathhouse, and Syrinx all of a sudden, whether he's in a steam steam room or whatever it might be, the steam clears and he sees Sorinthus sitting there in the bathhouse. So in that culture, in that day, you didn't meet up at Starbucks to one another, you know, the, the, the bathhouses could be the social exchange of information through the day, and so there's John, and he sees Sorinthus, this man who's a uh, an opponent of the Gospel and John is quoted as saying, let us fly, so he stands up after seeing Cyrenthus and to, to those who were with him, to John's disciples, he says, let us fly lest even the bath house fall down because Cerinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. So, you know when we, like someone makes a statement and we joke that, whoa, lightning's going to strike, let me get... Like, he wasn't joking. That's actually what he was saying, that the judgment of God might fall on this false teacher. So here's John. If that story is true, and we don't know for sure, but... Uh, uh, Arrhenius would be as accurate as other historians of the era that we put a lot of confidence in, whether that be Plato or Aristotle or Augustine or anything of those natures. Arrhenius passes that story down. And if this is really what John is like, it just confirms for us what we've been hearing the last several weeks, that John is someone who really cared about the truth. And he really took it personally when someone got the gospel wrong, when someone denied the truth of who Jesus Christ was. So we want to make sure we get this right, okay? We're not going to be calling anybody out this morning lest the the rooftop fall down like John. We won't do that this morning. But we want to key in and figure out, well, what does it look like to love one another and should the truth be important to us? Should the truth of who Jesus Christ is matter to us? Young people, as you think about, like, is doctrine even important, right? Uh, As you go through life as we we all go through uh, thinking about what it means to be a Christian and a part of a church. Should doctrine, truth matter? And how do we love one another in the face of doctrinal disagreement? We want to get this right because I would dare and venture to say that if we don't get this right, we've lost what it means to be the church. If we don't have truth and we don't have love, we will cease to be what God expects of a church in, in this day and age. And it will happen very, very quickly within a generation or two. So we want to make sure that we tune in. This is important. Let's dive into the book and understand what John is saying. Uh, in, in 2 John chapter, well, there's only, there is no chapter, there's just 13 verses. First one. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also but also all who know the truth. We've walked through First John, and you've gotten the summary of that. And this letter is an essentially a summary of everything that First John was to a select group of people. Uh, John is going to reiterate a lot of the same themes. In fact, to fully understand what John is saying, we would need to spend quite a bit of time going back to First John, and we could pull some of those verses out. And we in essence, we'd end up re-preaching some of the messages that we already have. But we won't take all the time to do that. Hopefully, you have followed along through some of the series. If you missed this. Sundays. Maybe you were able to catch some of them online, but I will reference some of the messages that we previously talked about. And now we want to think, well, how uh, are how is the truth that we have been walking through, the, 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 the reality that Christians believe the right things about Jesus, they believe the truth, Christians love other Christians, and Christians don't walk in disobedience, they keep God's commands. Those three truths, how's that played out in the life of this group of people? We're going to walk through this summary together. together. John, the same guy writes a book and he calls himself the elder. Now whether he was simply just the old man, he was probably advanced in years, this is probably written very near the end of his life, and so he would have had enough uh, reputation and authority within churches just to refer to himself as the elder, in, in meaning that he was advanced in age, or it could be that he actually had ecclesiastical authority in this group of people that he was writing to, meaning that he functioned in the office of elder. If that's the case, by the way, it would be very interesting to note that that the word elder that's used here, presbyteros, it's in the singular, which of the 60-some times that that word is used in the New Testament, there's only four that are in the singular. It's very interesting to note that consistently, when the New Testament talks about the office of elder, it's always talking about the plurality. It's always talking about the elders together, plural, even when it's writing to a singular local church. That's not where we're going this morning, just tuck that one away, you can look it up later. He refers to himself as the elder, and he writes to the elect lady and her children. Who is that? Who is he writing to? There would be some who would take this to mean that John is writing to an individual lady, Uh, and perhaps even the word elect is her name in Greek, and so that that was her proper name. So there's some that lean that way, but I think it's probably better to take this as a group of people, and actually that he's writing to an individual church, a church that he has a relationship with and so the the fact that she is the elect or the chosen church is who john is writing to so why would we say that this uh, would be written to a group of group of people rather than one individual. First of all, it's somewhat doubtful whether or not John would write to another individual woman and say that there's a command that the two of them need to love one another. That's doubtful, but it could work. Um, And then there's also throughout the book he switches into the main content of the book and he's writing in the plural. He's he's using, he's clearly speaking not to just one person but to more and he's speaking as a group. So internally within the book there's reasons to think that this is probably a group of people but also externally we look and frequently the church is spoken of in feminine form that the church is the bride of Christ and so it would make sense to call an individual church a chosen lady and that the members of the church are the children of this church they're the the members those who are part of it and so then that makes sense in verse 13 when he says the children of your elect sister greet you he's saying Paul excuse me John is writing to one church and he's saying the church I'm writing from all of us say hi to all of you and he's personifying this church so that's how we're going to take it as we go through this and he wants to write to them he says i love you in the truth but not just me also all those who know the truth because the truth that abides in us will be with us forever his emphasis right away from the first few verses is on the truth and he's going to just hammer this idea that the truth is what unites the truth is what provides a foundation for loving one another and then he says this grace mercy and peace will be with us from god the father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. What a beautiful greeting to start the letter. And, 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 and he doesn't ask that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. He confidently asserts and claims the truth that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. What a beautiful thing for Christians. If you're here this morning and a believer in Jesus Christ, no doubt some of you have lived through a week where you need grace and mercy and peace. John Stott reminds us that, that that grace and mercy are both expressions of God's love. Grace to the guilty and undeserving, mercy to the needy and helpless. We, that, that fits us, right? Oh believer, brother, or sister in the Lord, we're needy, we're helpless, we're undeserving, and yet we have a God who loves us and desires to give grace and mercy and peace. Peace is is the restoration of harmony with God and with others. We live in a world of chaos and we long for peace. And how encouraging that all of that comes from God the Father and from His Son, Jesus Christ. Be encouraged with that if you're here this morning and you need that grace, mercy, and peace. If you're a Christian, God loves you. He's coming into your life to show you his grace, his mercy, his peace, to make known himself to you through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says, all of these things will be what in the closing phrase of verse 3? In truth and love. John is consistently going to connect this idea that truth and love are not in opposition to one another. In fact, that they are connected to one another. So let's start walking these verses out and you're going to see that truth and love are are, uh, essentially connected to one another. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So somehow John has come into contact with a group from this church, and he, he sees some of the members of this church, some of the children of this elect lady, as he refers to the church, and he finds out they're walking in truth and love. They're keeping the commandments. They're, they're walking in obedience, and what joy that is for those of us in ministry to see that there are people who are sticking with the faith, for you as parents to see your children being faithful to the truth of the gospel. And John John says, this is encouraging, this is joyful, there was great joy in seeing that there were those who continued on in the faith as I should. And now though, he says this, he says in verse 5, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one that we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. So, it wasn't just that the truth was important, but the way that they treated one another, the way that they loved one another was also extremely important. We walked through this in detail a few weeks ago as we as we saw all the places in 1 John that actually mirror the Gospel of John and the way that we as Christians, if we uh, truly love Jesus, we show that love to one another. We fulfilled the one another commands of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13's definition of love that love is patient and kind and does not insist in its own way. These kinds of things, that this is the way that we willingly sacrifice for the good of others. And he says this, this is part of God's commands, and this is what we as a people need to do. He also says this in verse 6 that I find very interesting. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. So he closes verse 5 saying that we love one another and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Have you ever thought about this fact? If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the ways that you love the brothers and sisters in the pew around you is by being obedient to God. That is contrary to our normal way of thinking. We normally think that our life is our business, no one else's, this is between me and God, a personal relationship between me and him. But part of the way that John says that we love others is obeying God's commands. So go back to 1 John and think of some of the things that we said about not walking or continuing in sin. That's part of how we love one another is keeping God's commands. So, so you, you don't ever think that a private sin doesn't affect those around you. Your life and your sin has a deep impact on the relationships around you it's never just between you alone yes it is between you and god but it always has ramifications into the life of those around you so if you if you love the brothers and sisters here at shawnee be vigilant over your life and your obedience to God's commands. That's something that we ought to do, not because we think it earns us salvation, not because we think it makes us better than others around us, because we love God and we love others and we want to walk in obedience to his commands. But notice, as you go through this, truth and love are not separate from each other. This is what it means to walk in truth and love, is that, that they love one another because of the common truth that they share in the person of who Jesus Christ is. This is love that we, that we keep his commands. So let me ask this question. What is our basis for loving one another at Shawnee Baptist Church? Like what's the binding agent that holds us together as a church? Why do we agree to come together and fellowship together and worship together and show kindness to one another? Why, why do we commit to showing, the, to fulfilling the one another commands of scripture to one another? It's not because of shared common interest. It's not because of a particular love for particular ministries that meet or address felt needs. It's not because we all like the same style of music. It's not because we all agree the same way on certain political issues, because we don't. We all have different preferences in music. If, if I put a list, a whiteboard out in the foyer of the next new ministry that we should start, we, how many people are in this room? I don't know. 175? Would we get 175 different ideas of the new ministry to start? Probably not that many, but I know we wouldn't just get one. We wouldn't be unified in some of those uh, secondary areas, right? What's our basis for loving one another? It's truth. It's the truth of who Jesus Christ is. It's the truth of the gospel that then commits us to one another. John Stott says, truth is the ground of reciprocal Christian love. We love each other not because we are temperamentally compatible or because we are naturally drawn to one another, but because of the truth which we share. See, the church is a supernatural community that ought to transcend culture's reasons for loving one another. Uh, we can find clubs and groups to be a part of that share common interests and and the world knows how to show great kindness to one another inside those groups. But what's the church? The church is a group of people who've committed themselves to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And that's why we love each other. That's why we work hard to show kindness to one another, even in the face of disagreement. We don't pick churches based on certain styles and things that match our interests so that we all uh, generate together under uniformity. the, the thing that keeps us unified is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is. And that's why we show love to one another, and truth and love cannot be separated in that sense. So let me try to apply that then. If that's true, there's a particular way that this is important for you as the churchgoer, and a particular way that this is important for us as pastors and elders, church leaders. So for you as the church members there there's, there can be a temptation to pick a church or to switch churches based on the wrong reasons that that some of those things I listed some of those uh ministries uh that that Fit your needs at a certain season in life, uh, a style of music, a shared political interest, some of those things. Why do we work really, really hard to put Jesus Christ on display and him alone every single Sunday? It's because we don't want to give the mistaken impression that we are unifying around some other cause or some other agent or some other reason because we might be attracting people who think they're one of us when really we're not. We gather every Sunday to put Jesus on display so be very, very careful when you look for churches and perhaps you're here checking us out as a church, what is it that you want to be drawn to? You don't want to be drawn to the music. You don't want to be drawn to the ministries and programs. You don't want to be drawn to the personality of the preacher. You want to be drawn to the truth of the word of God and the gospel that the church unifies around. We're working very, very hard in the church foundations class to say, what is a church? It's a group of people who commit themselves to the truth of who Jesus Christ is and to pass on the truth of the gospel. And that's what we should be looking for in a church. Now, I know that there are valid reasons for leaving churches or switching churches, and so I don't want to discount times where that's necessary and real. But if the truth is what unites us, one of the particular times that this can be difficult for you as church goers and church members is in the area of relational conflict. We know that when you put sinners together in the same body, there's going to be times where feelings get hurt and toes get stepped on, and it's difficult to press through and love one another in the truth. But if the truth is what unites us, us relational conflict be careful I'm not saying there's never a time to leave for that there is but it's one of the places that's tricky uh because it will only be a matter of time before the new church the new people the new preacher whatever it is causes offense and that can't be why we're united in the first place we're we're united because of the truth of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. So make sure that we work hard to put that first, and then say, because of that truth, that's why we press through in love. That's why we fulfill the one another commands of scripture, because when people are committed to that truth, they love one another in that sense. Okay, so I said I would uh, apply it to the church goer. Now, let me take a moment, and if that was uncomfortable for you, I'll try to step on my own toes in the same way. We live uh, geographically, in 2019 in South Jersey, Shemong, Tabernacle, Southampton, Medford, all of this kind of stuff. We're geographically in kind of a unique area. There's a lot of people here. A lot of good, faithful churches. Uh, different churches, certainly. Different churches that would do things differently than we might by way of preference, but there is, uh, uh, um, by and large, several churches that teach the same truth of the gospel that we do. Now, this can be tempting for, uh, not, just, not just me as pastors, sometimes you see church leaders or lay people uh, I think it's particularly more susceptible, Kevin and I would be more susceptible to this as a paid elder, as composed to some of the elders that we have. You've chosen to, to plant your lives and root yourselves here, and so that's one of the benefits of a plurality of elders. But I think a particular temptation would be that we could say, listen, if this is what truth is is as a church leader, we're going to press the church into truth as fast as we can, and as quick, as wherever we need to go, if this is how far we need to go, then we're going to get there tomorrow at the expense of the people that we're supposed to love. Shepherds can be cruel to the sheep that they're supposed to love, thinking that, wow, we, we live in a large enough area that it will only be a matter of time before the seats are full again. How sad would that be if I, as a shepherd, if we as shepherds and leaders of the church said, you know what, we're gonna, this is what truth is, everybody better get there, and, and we don't care how uh, many people we run over in the way to get you there. That would be dangerous for us as shepherds. We, we need to be both committed to the truth And committed to love and loving the sheep that God has put here. Now, there does come a time when uh, eventually um, the direction that that the church is going or that the elders are going, there may be just enough conflict and odds there where somebody's not committed to that truth and they may need to move on. But that can't be the starting posture for the shepherds. That's got to be like a last resort, not the place that we start. Because we want to be people who are committed to both truth and love. Because one of the commandments God gave us from the very beginning is that we love one another as he has loved us. And he's the God of all grace, mercy, and peace. And he will lead us into truth. I'm not here as the Savior. I'm here to point people to the one who is the savior. And, and then we walk together in truth and love in those things and we want to be committed to that as a people. So let's, as a church, be committed to both truth and love and realize why do we love one another? It's because of our shared interest in the truth. Not because of our shared preferences in any other form. We're, we're committed to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So let's look at verse seven at this point then Paul kind of excuse me John switches gears and he begins to take it in another direction this is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it verse 7 for many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh such one is the deceiver and the antichrist five so three or four weeks ago pastor Kevin walked you through this passage in 1 John and remember what's taking place these are small a antichrists. Not, not talking end of the world antichrist, but talking those who are deceivers, those who are proclaiming a false doctrine. They're, they're denying the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And, and John even says they went out from us because they were not of us. And John is reminding this church that there's many who have gone out and they've deceived because they don't believe the truth of who Jesus Christ is. They don't believe both the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus Christ. They don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. That he's truly the Son of God. And so in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. There's this warning, right? Where John wants to remind them, listen, that there's false truth that's being spread around a person of Jesus Christ. Watch out. Be on guard. Look for this. Watch yourselves. This, this really could have a big negative impact on your life. Here's why doctrine is important. It, it reminds us of the truth of who Jesus Christ is. It reminds us of the truth. If the, if the church is a group of people who've committed themselves to the truth, then we want to make sure that we don't fumble that truth that we don't make it too broad, that we don't water it down, that we don't change it because the truth is what we need to guard. And there's many who are proclaiming false doctrines. It was happening in the first century and it's still happening today. In In the new foundations, in the church foundations class as we are working hard to explain to people what we believe, we're, we're reminding people that the church is a group of people who are confessional by nature. What do I mean by that? I mean we confess and hold to certain truths and doctrines. You might call these creeds, you call them statement of belief our church has a statement of belief in its founding documents and by nature christians are people who say yes this is what the truth is i think we have first timothy chapter 3 for you and i'd like to show you this verse on the screen first timothy chapter 3 and this is the way that paul says it to timothy great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness now Paul is reminding Timothy of the truth that the gospel that the church proclaims about the gospel. We confess this great truth. It's a great mystery of godliness. And then there's six clauses that come after this. And most commentators are agreed that this is an early church creedal statement. Early on in the history of the church, this is what they confessed about the person of who Jesus Christ was. And several weeks ago when Pastor Kevin walked through this sermon, he reminded you of the Nicene Creed and some of the other creeds that the church confessed of, on who the person of Jesus Christ was. But here's the way that Paul says it to Timothy in chapter 3 verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That the, the word known, definable, what is the truth? We can define it. We can test it. We can measure it. We can confess it. We can hold. We can study it and hold one another fast to it. So in the early church then, when you get to the book of Titus, when Paul commands Titus to appoint elders who can do what? What does he say that the elders need to be capable of doing? He says that they need to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There was a definable, measurable, trustworthy word that the elders needed to be able to defend. When you get to the book of Jude, why is that book written? Because uh, the writer wants to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. He realizes that there's theological threat, and he said, I felt it necessary to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered. There's this definable pass-down uh, from the apostolic line that we believe this is the truth of who Jesus Christ is. This is doctrine is not for just a boring seminary room for those who are someday want to devote their lives to preaching. Doctrine is for all of us because it's the truth we confess. It's the truth that we need to pass on. It's the truth that we need to hold to, and we as a church need to be very, very careful with it. Now, what is the warning specifically that John is giving to the church? How careful do we need to be with our doctrine? In the Church Foundations class, we're encouraging people that we need to be able to do theological triage. What do we mean by that? That there are, you've heard us talk about this before, that there's first order doctrines, there's primary doctrines. That means that without this, if you step outside of these bounds, you've lost the gospel. That's what was going on in 2 John. To deny that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, you had stepped outside orthodoxy, you had denied the truth of the gospel. Now there's several things that you'll notice in our statement of faith if you were to read our churches that are like in-house discussions that Christians might disagree on the mode of baptism and so, several other points of doctrine that we would say, you know what? There's not enough agreement to plant churches together or to, to be in the same church, but there is enough agreement on the gospel. These are second order things. So when you get to John's admonition to to not uh, give hospitality to a heretic, I don't think we're talking about second order doctrines. Things that are, uh, that are outside the order of the gospel in that sense. And then there would be other things that would be tertiary or third order that even we inside the same church might have difference of opinion on and we can still lovingly fellowship together. But we need to be careful thinking about that and to not elevate one wrongly over the other. Now that I've said all that, why does John, why is he so adamant that they have to pass on the truth? That when these heretics come, who are denying that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he says, watch yourself, guard, be on the lookout. Because uh, he, he doesn't want them to lose their reward and to lose their faith. Listen, the, the church will quickly become irrelevant when we don't guard the truth. And there are so many today who are trying to take the message of the church and market it and make it more palatable, and all they're doing is making the church irrelevant. The world will never look at us and say, wow, you're so gracious and glorious and we want to be like you. People that God has chosen to be his children will do that. And we want to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel because we believe that God is drawing the world to those, those that he has chosen. He is drawing them out of the world into the kingdom of light and he is saving his children. And so we rejoice in that. A man named David Wells has written a book called The Courage to be Protestant and he writes in this topic helping churches understand if you're not careful with your message you are quickly going to become irrelevant. And he says if we as a church don't want to lose our voice in culture the church must remember two points in particular. First, that Christianity is about truth, and second, that those who say they are Christians must model this truth by their integrity. Christianity really is about truth. Right. The truth of who Jesus Christ is. And this is why it's extremely important when people come and deny the truths of the gospel. Christianity is about truth. And those who say they are Christians must model this truth by their integrity. Listen, it doesn't do a lick of good if we proclaim the truth and then people watch our lives Monday through Saturday and there's no integrity there. And if, we, if we're one person in church and the things that people watch us doing and saying and living like in the world if there's no integrity in that message, we, we very quickly lose our Christian witness. That's why John was concerned that Christians obeyed God's commands. That they didn't walk in continual habitual patterns and lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Because you can't say you believe the truth if, if there's not a lifestyle that lives that out. And so we as Christians must be committed to those facts and committed to those truths. Uh, this... this uh, This is the place where we will have a voice to share as a church. In a world that's increasingly chaotic, in a world where uh, the the truth is increasingly downplayed, we must be people who are committed to the truth. And we must be people who desire to pass that truth on. Well, finally, there's a bit of a warning and instruction. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him, take part in his wicked works. So here John is making it crystal clear that when someone proclaims a false gospel and denies the truth of who Jesus Christ is, there's wickedness involved in that and if if this church wasn't careful, their hospitality would be participating in or agreeing with that work. So how how should we think about this as a church? What does this mean? if you have someone knock on your door and they're proclaiming a false gospel, does this mean you need to slam the door in their face or you're in error of 2 John if you were ever invite them in? There's some that probably think that, but I'm not sure that's exactly the message that John was trying to give. I, I think we can think of it this way. Remember, in this early church culture, uh, missionaries or those who went out proclaiming their messages were reliant on hospitality. The, the, at, at, when the Roman world developed the road system, the Pax Romana, through, through the, when they brought peace to the area of Rome and they were able to develop the highway system, this is what enabled the spread of information at such a fast rate and why the gospel was able to get to other places. Well, false teachers were able to use that same road system and they were able to go from town to town proclaiming their false heresies and there wasn't, you know, the Motel 6 on the corner that you could book your registration online. You were pretty well reliant on the hospitality of others to invite you into their home. So, Other places in scripture would show us that we still need to be courteous, that there still needs to be a kindness and a common Christian courtesy. I think particularly what John is warning against here is that the church, by inviting these speakers in, is giving them a platform. They're financially enabling and funding a false gospel. So I think what's adamant for us as believers and for us as a church is to be very careful with the funds that God has given us to make sure it's going to promoting true gospel messages. it's uh, being used to further the same truth that we believe in the truest sense of what the gospel is. And so we want to be careful just sending money off to places that doesn't believe the same gospel that we do. We would want to be very careful in our day and age of social media of promoting false heresies online and promoting books of false teachers or endorsing in a way that looks like we are joining in their work or helping them to get their message out. So I think that's what, John, uh, we as a church and we as a people need to apply our message, and specifically, also particularly, it's the teachers. It's those who are the leaders and the teachers of these false ministries. This doesn't mean that your uh, unsaved, deceived co-worker who's in the the cubicle next to you and believes a false gospel, it doesn't mean that you ought not befriend them with hospitality and seek to win them over to the gospel. Specifically, John's warning against the leaders and teachers of these false gospels. We as Christians still need to reach out with the truth to those who are deceived. This kind of reliance on the truth is extremely important for us as Christians, for us as a church. Look what verse 9 says before that warning in verse 11, 10, 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I love the way John puts that. Everyone who goes beyond, who gets out in front who goes on ahead and doesn't abide in Christ. I told the, the class that I was teaching in the New Foundations class, in the Church Foundations class this morning, just that the truth of the Gospel is incredibly simple, but it's also easy to get wrong. It, it, it's difficult if we're not careful to abide and stay in and and just say this is what Christ taught, it's what we're going to abide in, it's what we're going to stay in. There's all these temptations to go beyond and to get out in front. Listen, be careful of teachers who espouse a, a, a new Christianity, that they've got it figured out, that they've been able to go beyond, the, they've left the elementary things behind and now they've gone beyond it's likely that John is borrowing words from the heretics. It's likely that they were saying, we've left elemental things behind, we've been able to go beyond, and now we have the real truth. And John's saying, if you go beyond, if you don't abide in the teaching of Christ, you don't have God. Plummer says it this way, that to advance beyond the Gospel is not progress, it's apostasy. And so we as a people need to abide, to stay, to rest in the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. There's a story that's told of a man named Dick Lucas, an Anglican minister in London, and he would train ministers, those wanting to be in uh, preachers, and he would walk to the chalkboard and he would start on the left-hand side and he would walk clear to the other side drawing a line with his chalk. And he would turn and he would look and he would say, what is it? And you would say, well, that's a line. And this isn't going to be nearly as impressive, number one, because I don't have a chalkboard. And number two, I don't have this British accent being from London and this uh, fatherly man. But he would say to me, what does the line represent? And he would say, the line is the truth as passed on through scriptures of who Jesus Christ is. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of the word of the God. And he said, listen, ministers, your task, stay on the line. Don't go above it. Don't go below it. And there's this, there's this temptation for all of us to, to add things to Scripture. That'd be going above the line. To try to say that things are important and that we need to be digging in and, and finding out things that, well, God never said that. Stay on the line. Don't add to Scripture. And don't water it down. Don't start denying truths that are central to the gospel. We need to stay on the truth. Because if we as a church don't abide in both truth and love, we'll lose what it means to be a church. You have this quote in your bulletin by uh, Douglas Sean O'Donnell. And I'll close with this. He says, It is because of heresy that truth and love in the church must join hands and walk forward together. For if you have just truth without love, Or love without the truth, you do not have the church. You might have a political party, country club, or workers' union, but you do not have Emmanuel's ecclesia. The church is not a society where you can come as you are, stay as you are, do as you like, and think as you might. Rather, Christ's church is a place, or a people to be more precise, where truth and love reside and preside, where love and truth necessarily join hands and walk forward together. This is our task as a church, to be committed to truth, but be committed to love, to carry out those commands to one another. Ask God to reveal these things in your hearts as you go through this week. Read 2 John again. Go back to 1 John. Ask God to show you what we're to be about as a people, that we're committed to truth, we're committed to love, and we'll ask God to do these things. Father, we come to you and we're grateful for who you are as God. Help us to be a church that is committed to truth. Help us to be people who are committed to loving one another. Father, show us places where we need to make those adjustments in our lives. May we be careful not to go beyond the truth of who Christ is. Help us to abide in the truth of the gospel. Father, use your spirit in our hearts. Help the the things that are true and good from your word to continue to ring and convict and instruct Encourage us, we ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.